0: Let's turn in our Bibles together to the book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon as we're making our way through this uh, Hebrew love poem or song written by Solomon if you're just joining us for the first time. um, Trigger warning, I suppose, is in order. Uh, This is going to be uh, one of the more explicit passages in the Song of Songs, and we're going to attempt to deal with it as tastefully as we can, but in full recognition that this is God's Word. And where Scripture does not shy away from speaking to us, we will hear it with uh, attentiveness and and interest in seeing how God might apply it to our hearts. Song of Songs will be in chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 1. With the Word of God open, let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time this evening. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that You would open our eyes that we would see the wonderful things contained in Your Word, that You would speak, Lord, we are listening. Would You help us? Lord, help especially those among us who are waiting for intimacy and fulfillment in marriage. Would You strengthen them for the wait and help those of us who are married to love our spouse as well and enjoy them in all of the goodness that You've made them, and help those who are sexually broken, who have made gross and grievous mistakes with their bodies and sins in the past, to know the forgiveness that's available in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would minister it now to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Song of Songs, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, reading through chapter 5, verse 1, this is God's word, so please pay attention to how you listen to it. Solomon speaking now, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come away with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with just one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride! How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all its choicest fruits henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends. Drink and be drunk with love. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, there are a lot of good quotes out there related to food. I will share a few of them with you at the risk of uh, pigeonholing myself as the pastor who always uses food illustrations. Uh, let's go through some of these together, some of them you may be familiar with. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Life is uncertain, so eat dessert first. I cook with wine, sometimes I even add it to the food. Food brings people together. My doctor told me I had to stop throwing intimate dinners for four unless I started inviting three other people. (laughs) All happiness depends on a leisurely breakfast. Life is just too short for self-hatred and celery. Ice cream is exquisite. What a pity it isn't illegal. Let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. The best meal is the one that's free. Well, some of these are funny, and some of them are truer than others, but that last one just isn't true. The best meal is not the one that's free. In reality, the food that you wait for and painstakingly prepare and is made for you by the one you love or made by you for the one that you love, that's the best meal. A meal savored both in its preparation and in its eating, that's the best meal. Food was designed to be enjoyed and appreciated and noticed, not inhaled. One other quote that I didn't include here that said, spaghetti is best eaten like a vacuum. That's just not true. We glorify God when we patiently and gratefully and thoughtfully enjoy the best delicacies that He has given us, don't we? When we enjoy His bounty, His provision, when we acknowledge His hand of providence in the food that we eat, even as we, many of us, yesterday evening celebrated harvest at the homestead and remembered what it means to be grateful to a God who provides a bounty for his people. Well, our text this evening suggests that the same, this idea of patiently, gratefully, thoughtfully enjoying God's gifts is not only true for food but for sex. Of course, food is good and plenty of people partake of it thoughtlessly and still have some inkling of the goodness of what they're eating, but that's not the way it's supposed to be and sex is the same way. There are plenty of people who rush in, who uh, uh, consume as much as they can and as fast as they can. We might refer to them as sexually obese people, if you will. But there's no deep love and appreciation for the intimacy that God has designed for the confines of covenant marriage. There's no gratefulness to God when thinking about His gift of intimacy. Many people in our culture and even within the church are nothing more than consumers of sex, using the chef and missing out on the joy. Perhaps there are here this evening some of you who are participating in sexual activity outside of marriage. You're going beyond God's design for sex and the enjoyment of it, and you know as I say this that you are missing on some of the full blessings of god for you by the way of sex within marriage let me challenge you not to turn off now and close your ears but to listen to what god would say about sex and intimacy in marriage you may think to yourself it's too difficult to wait you just don't understand or you don't know how much we've tried to wait besides we plan on marrying so what's the difference now It would seem to me from a cursory reading of our text that Solomon knew exactly how difficult it was to wait for intimacy. And that's the point. It's difficult because it's worth waiting for. Because God has made us, He's created us to desire sex and to enjoy it within the bounds of His design, which is marriage. It's no wonder then that it's hard to wait. But our text tells us about this. It talks about the difficulty of waiting and the need to wait and the blessing of God upon appropriate intimacy within the confines of marriage. And what I want to see this evening together are three things that Song of Songs here in this passage teaches us about sexual intimacy. And these three things are meant to be instructive both to the married and to the unmarried. They are for those of us who are in covenant marriage as we consider how God thinks about our marriage beds, and for those who are not yet in marriage as you consider how God expects you to wait patiently and enjoy appropriately in time. And so I hope the importance of this text How it speaks to each of us is evident as we make our way through it together. Three things that this passage tells us about intimacy. Number one, it tells us in verses 1 through 7, frankly, it's hard to wait for sexual intimacy. Number two, it tells us in verses 8 through the first half of chapter 5, verse 1, that it is good to wait for sexual intimacy. And then finally, we'll look at the little bit, the last half of verse 5, or excuse me, verse 1 in chapter 5, that sexual intimacy in marriage is blessed by God. Let's look at Solomon's song to his new wife. If you'll recall, last week, we looked at verses 6 through 11 of chapter 3, and we saw the wedding ceremony, this public ceremony where God himself attended to it, and it was a great joy to all the people and to the eager, anticipating couple. And now we come to the wedding. All of the crowds have left, all of the friends have gone home, the cleanup crew is there taking care of the fellowship hall and wiping it down, and now Solomon sings a song to his new wife. And it's a song of overwhelming anticipation for the consummation of their marriage. It's a song that highlights and accentuates and revels in the physical realities of his beloved and her beauty. And it clearly here shows the difficulty of having to wait for it. It's difficult to miss Solomon's passion in these verses. Just hearing me read it may have been a little uncomfortable because clearly we're getting a peek into a private encounter between a man and his wife. It's impossible to ignore the sexual tension he conveys in describing his new bride. There's a sense of eagerness about it a longing to explore all that's been promised to him, that he's been waiting for. Thus far, he has only observed her from afar. Remember back in chapter 2, in verse 9, it tells us that he leapt over the mountains like a young gazelle or like a young stag, and then he stands behind the wall, gazing through the window and only looking through the lattice. He's only observed from a distance so far, but now he's arrived. The gate has come down, and the doors are open, and the window has been lifted. And he begins to describe one more time all of the features of her beauty that he finds so alluring. And notice with me that there are, of course, seven of them. There's a, a sense in which the holiness and completeness of her physical beauty is on display. It's as if God has shown him that finding his counterpart in another person is a perfect thing. It's a completing thing. It wasn't good for him to be alone, and so God made a companion suitable to him, and the two have now become one flesh completely. It hasn't been easy for him to wait, has it? Listen to how he describes his Shulamite maiden, how he says these glorious things about her about her appearance. He speaks about her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her mouth, her cheeks, her neck, and her breasts. You can almost picture him seeing her across the room and making eye contact with and noticing her face, and then as his eyes move across her, he notices her whole physical shape and features. You can imagine him Uh, not being shy about his longing for her as he proclaims his love and desire for her. It should strike us as quite remarkable that the Bible does not blush at highlighting his longing after her physical appearance. All of her parts are noteworthy to Solomon. He's been waiting for them, hasn't he? And that's okay, folks. It's okay, young people, to acknowledge that but we're still waiting. Indeed, it's amazing to him, it's beautiful to him because God made her this way. He formed and fashioned her in his wisdom when she was yet in her mother's womb. He fearfully and wonderfully created her and shaped her and gave her all of the features that Solomon longs after. And I frankly think it's quite a shame that the church has suppressed this sort of teaching That the church has effectively told Christian men and women, especially you teenagers, that sex is simply for procreating and that bodies are inherently bad, bad to think about, bad to look at, bad to compliment, and bad to desire. But the reality is that God gave us bodies that are enjoyable, didn't he? Sex is enjoyable. It's a good gift from God to be used in the proper context, Now, I don't intend to walk through the details of all these features, that would probably be unnecessary and somewhat difficult for us to maintain decorum, but I will highlight a few things that he's saying by his list of features that he loves about his bride and that he longs to experience with her. First of all, it's noteworthy in the descriptions that he used, of course, this being an ancient Near Eastern uh, song, there will be some differences between the things we might choose to highlight or emphasize and the things that he does. Uh, But beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? We've seen that already in the Song of Songs, as he uh, or she herself has somewhat of a low esteem of her uh, comeliness, and he himself finds her to be the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. But some of the ways that he compliments her here might leave us a bit confused. Uh, Perhaps none of us have really thought about the beauty of a neck, for example, or cheeks, I certainly wouldn't be quick to mention the presence of all of someone's teeth as a noteworthy compliment. Uh, one person has remarked that missing teeth in children is adorable and charming, but so strange in adults. <clears throat> Not on the top of our beauty standard lists. But really, what he's doing is he's complimenting her vitality, isn't he? And her dignity. And do notice, please, that he's not being inappropriate. Solomon is highlighting the parts of her that are generally noticeable in modest clothing. He's not being inappropriate or going out of the bounds of, uh, of, of what we would consider appropriate. He's not saying that she's immodest. He's talking about her head and her neck and her facial features and her general shape something that you would notice in any sort of modest clothes, and and it's her modesty and her beauty and modesty that he longs for. He finds her irresistible, fully dressed. There's nothing off-putting about what he says here. It's simply a different way than we're used to thinking about beauty and standards of beauty and the longing for someone of the opposite sex. But he does in saying these things, and highlighting uh, what we might call modest features of her, he does mention parts of her that are generally reserved for intimate touch for a married couple. Her eyes, for example. He talks longingly about her eyes. Your eyes are like doves. They're hidden behind your veil. There's a sense that they haven't been exposed yet to anyone. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Uh, Men and women should only look so longingly and intensely into the eyes of their beloved, shouldn't they? You men understand what I mean when I say that. You know that it's appropriate to make eye contact with someone respectfully as you talk to them. I make eye contact with many of you as we sing hymns and songs together and as we talk. But there's something reserved for a spouse when someone looks longingly into the eyes of another, intensely staring at their soul. It would be inappropriate for men to look that way, like they do with their wife with another woman, and women with men. And he's speaking of her eyes in that sense. He makes deep, connected contact with her through her eyes. Likewise, her face and her neck, touching someone on the face or brushing the neck are borderline sexual in nature, aren't they? It is not innocent to caress the neck or face of someone of the opposite sex. It is intimate, and he has longed to touch her face and to kiss her neck, and he's only looked at it from afar so far. And so now as he gets closer and the veil is coming back, he thinks about what it will be like to make contact with these parts of her that are reserved for him, modest as they may be. Her lips are the same. Kisses with a mouth the way he describes hers is clearly romantic and passionate. He sees how lovely her mouth is. He says that your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Later, he'll say that her, uh, uh, her lips are dripping nectar and honey and milk are under her tongue in verse 11. He wants to kiss her passionately, not in the way that a parent kisses a child or a holy kiss, a friend greets a kiss, greets someone with a kiss, but as the one that he loves. Her breasts are most certainly reserved for the enjoyment of her husband, not to be immodestly paraded on display for other men, but for him alone to be intoxicated by them. In Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon will tell his son to let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And so he mentions these things that are modestly uh, on display, And yet they're reserved especially for him in the context of marriage. We have a clear message here in these first seven verses of eager longing for physical touch and access and intimacy. If I can say it so plainly, he really wants to consummate the marriage. He's ready. He's been waiting outside and now he's there. The wedding bells have stopped reverberating throughout the fields. And he sees her and he's aware of what's next. And this is okay. This is normal. God made us to long for a partner in the opposite sex. It's how he made Adam and Eve in the garden, isn't it? And this longing was designed by God and built into man, both as a habit for procreation, because that's how God intended to fill the earth with his image bearers, But please don't miss this, the way that Solomon talks about his Shulamite maiden here is not about procreation. He says nothing about having children with her at all in this text, it's just sex talk. He's excited to be with her and he simply wants to consummate their marriage because God designed men and women to go together like that. Of course they will be fruitful and multiply as the Lord gives increase, but it is not a sub-Christian thing Or, an unbiblical thing to acknowledge that sex is from God, both for procreation and for pleasure. But they aren't there yet. Notice in these first seven verses that all of Solomon's descriptions are observational. They've been waiting. He's looking, but not yet enjoying them. And this is the point waiting is difficult waiting is difficult. Listen to how he described her. You don't imagine him acting all cool. You imagine his hands are sweating and his knees are shaking as he stares into her eyes waiting for their wedding night to arrive. But he does wait, doesn't he? And they do wait together because they know that the only way to fully enjoy what God has given them is to enjoy it in God's way. And we've already seen that in our time in Song of Songs, haven't we? We don't deny that it's difficult. We don't deny that God made it to be enjoyable, but we do deny that we have the privilege and freedom to access whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and not experience the consequences of a life lived outside of God's design. And so waiting is hard, but it's good to wait for sexual intimacy in marriage. Verses 8 through the first part of chapter 5, verse 1. Now the waiting is over, and the goodness of having waited for the appropriate context is on full display. In verse 8, listen to what he says. Uh, He says to his bride, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. This is the north country outside of the land of Israel. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana and Sinir and Hermon. Mount Hermon is that giant mountain at the north end of Israel from which flow all the waters of the Jordan River. Come away from the dens of lions out in open fields and from the mountains of leopards. In other other words, the, the wedding is here, and he is bringing her to himself from the danger of other men prowling around after her. Do you remember that from last week? That the wedding ceremony ought to leave the bride feeling safe and secure. He's calling her to himself. He's going to keep her safe from the lurking dangers. I think there's something here that seems to imply that she may be shy, I think what's going on is that she's a virgin, she's kept herself for her marriage, that's evident in the previous text, and maybe she's a bit nervous and and holding back from him on their wedding night, but he says, no, come to me, come with me, come down from the mountain, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to treat you tenderly and love you the right way. He reminds her of his deep love for her and his commitment to keep her safe, both in life and in the bedroom. And now in verse 9 and following, he begins to readdress some of her physical features and his love for them, only now it's been ratcheted up a notch, hasn't it? Did you catch that when we read through the text earlier? What, of, what originally was observational descriptions are now, they've now reached the level of experiential touch. Touch. In verse 3, her mouth looked beautiful. Verse 3, what does it say? Your lips are like a scarlet thread. I can see that. Your mouth is lovely. Now, by the time he gets to verse 11, he's tasted them. Your lips drip nectar and honey and milk are under your tongue he's moved beyond the waiting he's now experiencing the goodness of intimacy and in marriage clearly they have waited that's been on in raised relief in the first four chapters that this man and woman are setting up appropriate boundaries and using the godly counsel of mature people around them to hold them back from going too far but now that's done away with they're married now and they're enjoying one another aren't they Notice how he describes how she smells in verses 10 and 11 and 14. Before she was from a distance, now they're so close that he can smell her. Her fragrance is in his nostrils. And he says in verse 10, Your love is better than wine, and the fragrance of your oils better than any spice. And then he goes in verses 13 and 14. To mention all these different spices and, and flavors and scents that are apparent in her physical being that he's enjoying in marriage. There's an obvious allusion to her sexuality in verse 12 when he speaks of her garden. It's not an uncommon phrase in ancient Near Eastern writing or even modern Middle Eastern poetry to describe a woman's sexuality this way. And without being crass about it, notice how he speaks of her garden He says, it's been locked up. Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. She's reserved herself not only with him, but for him. She's saving herself not only by abstaining from intimacy with him before it's too late, but abstaining from intimacy with anyone and saving herself for him. Her garden had been locked up, kept closed, sealed up. It promises life and pleasure and enjoyment in verses 15 and 16. It's a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon, filled with choicest fruits, it says in verse 16. But until they're married, they've waited. They waited for the appropriate time. She's waited to give herself fully to her husband. And my friends, it's such a shame. You young people here, teenagers, and those of you who are single and not yet married, you're being told that it's foolish to wait for marriage. You're being told that it's silly to wait, that you're depriving yourself, that it's better to cohabitate and become sexually active to see if you're compatible You don't want to get into a marriage and make it difficult later if you find out that you don't enjoy each other. So live together for a while. Have sex with anybody that you can and find out what you enjoy and then make that your habit. See if you're compatible. How foolish. Of course, men and women are compatible. That's how God made us, He designed us to be. It's nothing more than an excuse by our culture to experience the thing reserved for marriage outside of the covenant, commitments of marriage. Yet the Shulamite woman waited, and so did her Solomon. My dear young friends, are you waiting? Those of you in relationships right now or considering relationships, are you waiting? Not just just fighting to wait, but desiring to wait? Desiring to wait, knowing that God's best Is what's in store for you, and it's a thousand times better than what you can know outside of His will. We talk here at Christ's covenant about being a get to church, not a have to church. We get to come to worship, we get to hear from God's word, we get to fellowship with each other. We don't have to do those things, and waiting for sex and marriage is not a have to thing, it's a get to thing. Because you're blessed to experience all the goodness God has reserved for you in the proper context. Verse 16, this pure girl having waited and made her beloved wait outside the walls, gazing through the lattice and the windows, is now allowed to enter and to take his wife for himself. All that is hers is now his. And he enjoys all that she has for him. The joy of sexual intimacy in marriage cannot be overstated. But the danger of sexual intimacy outside of marriage can even more so not be overstated. A world of trouble and pain and regret and sin abides that way. Solomon will tell his son in Proverbs over and over again that death lies down that path. Notice in verse 16... The language changes just a little bit. Up in verse 12, he says, a garden locked is my sister. It's been locked. In verse 15, it's a garden fountain, a well of living water. In verse 16, I believe she's speaking here. She says, blow upon my garden, my garden, and let its spices flow. Verse 16b, let my beloved come to his garden and enjoy its choicest fruits. You see the transition that happens there as they become one flesh in covenant marriage? That what was hers is now his. And what's his is now hers. This is no different than what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is it? And you don't need to turn there, I will, and read it for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul speaking to couples here and and others as well, he says, uh, you wrote to me, they asked the question, hey, Paul, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? And Paul responds, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That's a sort of contractual way of putting it, I think. But the point in view here is that when you enter into a marriage with somebody, you have an expectation to certain privileges of marriage. Women do and men do. Now, listen to what he says here in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. It's his. And we think, oh, there we go again, patriarchal Paul, telling all the women to get down on the floor and clean and make food and stuff. There he goes again, being a a jerk. But what does it say next? Likewise, the husband doesn't have ownership or authority over his own body, but the wife does. Whoa. Equal ownership in marriage. Equal partnership in marriage and in relational joy and fellowship. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement. Boy, this is a whole other sermon, isn't it? Uh, Except perhaps by agreement, not because of a fight. Sex is not a weapon to hold over the head of your beloved or your spouse in order to manipulate them into agreeing with you, by the way. Don't abstain or deprive each other, except for a agreement by, for a limited time, to devote yourselves to prayer. Why? Because depriving yourself opens the door for sem- Satan to tempt you because of your lack of self-control Well, that's a whole other sermon that we won't get into now but paul here says exactly what solomon is conveying in chapter 4 verse 16 that what was hers is now his that's the joy of marriage that the two become one it's no longer inappropriate it's inherently appropriate to be intimate with the one that's been fully given to you and you to them husbands and wives do you fully give yourselves to one another still after many years? Remember, sex is not just for procreation, but for enjoyment and an int- for intimacy and for fellowship and for the health and holiness of your marriage. Because being deprived for a lengthy period of time leads to temptation in some cases. Well, the idea that it's holiness in marriage leads us to our last point very quickly. God blesses sexual intimacy inside the bounds of covenant marriage. Look at verse uh, 1b. My Bible, above verse 1b, has the word in all caps bold, others. Yours might say friends. Perhaps it says nothing. The second half of verse 1 in chapter 5 says this, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And the editors of our Bibles assume there that the voice has shifted from Solomon and from the Shulamite to the daughters of Jerusalem or the friends, the others who have been there encouraging them along the way. I think that God is speaking here in this verse. Of course, he's been speaking through all of it, but I think specifically and explicitly God is speaking. He is declaring over their marriage bed a benediction, his blessing on their union, his joy in their enjoyment of one another, because that's what he made it for. That's the context for it, and God delights in the joy of his people He made us to fit together. He intricately created us and all of our parts to work this way. It's no accident that sex is enjoyable. If God simply wanted us to use our sexual organs to procreate, he could have done that without any pleasure. The same is true of food. Think back to our food quotes. God, listen, God made bacon and chocolate and wine and yellowfin tuna, and saffron, and apple pie, and chili, and all the great food the linems have made for our church this evening, which we're going to enjoy. God made that. We don't plug ourselves into the wall to recharge. God doesn't make us drink plain water and eat worms all day. We have food to enjoy, and He gave us marriage and sex within marriage to enjoy. And to enjoy enjoying it as Solomon and his bride do, so much so that he tells this husband and wife to be drunk with their love for each other. What a benediction. What a blessing from God. The Christian marriage not only can be drunk with love, it should be. It should be. Are you drunk with love for your spouse? Seeing them is intoxicating. Thinking about being near them makes you swoon. As we wrap this up, I want to ask you a question. How can we be so bold and unashamed of all this? Is it beneath the church and the pulpit of a church to preach on such things? I say emphatically no. Not only should we be talking about such things, I believe we must. This passage here is plainly in view when Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a reflection of Christ's love for the church. This text is paradigmatic for a longing, loving desire for the one to whom you've been betrothed. And so when Paul speaks about Christ's love for the church, he's thinking in a holy spiritual reflection on this sort of love for someone. As Solomon longs for his bride, so too was God so full of love for us that he sent his only son to die for us and take us to himself. As Solomon saw her bride in all her imperfections, ladies, I'm sorry, there's not a one of you out there that fits the description in verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love, there is no flaw in you. But Solomon can say that of his bride because of his love for her. So too can Christ say to those of us who are forgiven and who wear the robes of his righteousness, I love you and I see no flaw in you. When God looks at the bride of Christ, he sees only the perfect righteousness of his son. And as the man and woman are encouraged to feast on each other and be drunk in their love, so too do we, the church, God's people, feast on Christ, enjoying all of His benefits reserved for us alone, His people. And we are drunk with love for our Savior. Even as Paul says in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with love, but be intoxicated by the Holy Spirit. Now this wedding between and the Solomon and the Shulamite maiden took place some 3000 years ago and it surely included a great feast of rejoicing. Does that make you long for the great feast of rejoicing that we will experience when we see our bridegroom face to face? We'll sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb and feast on real food, food that's better and more delightful than anything we've ever known. And our intimacy with Christ, looking at Him face to face, will exceed any intimacy we can experience on earth, even in the bed of marriage. And Christ died to make it so. His blood is the wedding invitation to you and me. In the meantime, we wait. We don't give ourselves to another. We wait. We keep ourselves for Christ alone. And we eagerly await his return when he'll come to claim us as his own and take us to his home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for the love of Christ for us, your people. Help us to feast on him. To love our spouses well. For our young people and unmarried to wait, knowing that you've designed their bodies, marriage, sexual intimacy, and your design is better than anything we can do apart from you. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.